long for is that our students' faith would become their own. We'd love for you to be a part of our student ministry. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to have you here with us this morning as we're continuing our series entitled, This I Believe. And as a kid, I viewed God very much like the all-powerful Oz. That's how I viewed God. Let me turn my clicker on. There we go. So that's how I viewed God as the all-powerful Oz. Uh, I knew God as a little kid was someone powerful. I knew and had believed that he created the world and that he had done things um, like had parted the Red Sea and he had helped David defeat Goliath and he helped uh, save Daniel's life in the lion's den. So I knew these things that God had done that were demonstrations of his incredible power. Um, I also knew that God had done things that could alter my eternal destiny. I knew that he had sent Jesus to this earth and he died on the cross and if I choose to follow him and have a relationship with him, I would spend eternity with God forever. So I knew these truths about, about God, but there was a part of God that escaped me, and the part of God that escaped me is the part that God was a loving, compassionate God. That was just a component that seemed to be removed from my life and my experience. It took me many years to not only understand that at a cognitive level, but then at a personal level to understand what does it look like and what does it mean to, have, to know that there's a God who loves me. And when I talk about God... Um, I hear a lot of different images and perspectives that people offer, and maybe one of these on the screen will connect with where you're at this morning. Some people think of God as Simon Cowell. You know, he's out there judging you and, and uh, with a critical eye, wondering whether or not you're me- you will measure up and will you make it to the next round. Some people view God a little bit like Mr. Rogers, you know, meek, passive, gentle, you know, soft tones. You visit his house weekly, he tells you something good and meaningful, and then you, talk, you walk away feeling good for the rest of the week. Some of you may view God as a little bit like the OnStar option. When you push that OnStar button, you get someone responding. They help you if you get lost, you lock your keys in your car, you need to find a hotel. And so some view God like the OnStar button. I'll push him when I need something, and then he's just kind of there. Some people view God a little bit like a stained glass window. It's beautiful. It's ornate. I'm not, I don't really get it. And so when they come to church, there's a lot of words they don't understand or concepts they can't wrap their mind around. But it's beautiful, and it's a nice experience to see it for what it is. But I think this last one is often how much of our culture views God. A little bit like this, a little bit like a blender. And I would choose a Vitamix blender if I could choose a blender. But you know, we view God as someone that we just toss a few things into the blender, so we toss the golden rule into the blender, and I'll take five, I'll go with six out of the Ten Commandments, I'll toss that in the blender, a little bit of karma into the blender, you know, a little bit of political correctness in the blender, grind it all up, and that's my view of God. And so I'm not sure what your view of God is, but your view of God makes a huge difference in your life. And I might suggest to you that your view of God, everything about life hinges on your view of God. And this morning as we dive into this, our series entitled This I Believe, which we're looking at this creed, this ancient creed called the Apostles' Creed. And each week we want to look at a phrase in the Apostles' Creed. And the one we want to look at this week is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And as we look at each of these phrases, our goal is that we would slowly begin to understand and sit with the truth about what God's word is. The Apostles' Creed was developed over 1,600 years ago um, by a group of individuals who wanted to summarize their faith. We would say today they wanted to bullet point their faith. 
They try to take all the truth about the Bible and put it in bullets so that there could be a creed that they could recite and remind themselves of that would provide unity and focus and direction for them. The creed was established in the year 390 when a group of scholars put this all together and they've paid credit to the apostles for that. And so last week we talked about the concept of just belief. And we talked about the fact that in belief there's space that God gives us space to believe, but also to doubt, to wrestle with our faith, to try to understand it, to recognize there's some things I might not understand, I might not fully get, and for you to know that God is big enough to be okay with your doubts. He's big enough to be okay with your uncertainty. He's big enough to be okay with your questions. And this morning, if you are someone who's exploring faith, If you're someone who's trying to figure out the whole God and faith thing, my hope is that I will give you some truth about God that you will walk away and you'll chew on it this week. And if you're a student or a young adult, one of our hopes for you is that your faith would become your own, especially if you've grown up here and maybe been a part of student ministry as we just heard about. At some point, your faith has to become your own. And my hope for you is that you will walk away with this and it will reaffirm some of the truths that you've heard and give you confidence that the God of the Bible that we're going to talk about is a God that you can believe in and you would choose to follow. And if you've been walking with God for many years and the God of the Bible is a God you know and you love and you treasure and you cherish, my hope this morning is that it will confirm and strengthen your faith and confidence in God. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn and join me in Acts 17. That's where we're going to be this morning, Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat there in front of you. Uh, Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be. It's page 899. You can also follow along on your phone or an app if you have that with you, or the verses will be on the screen as well. The story, of the book of Acts is really a story, and the, the title is The Acts of the Apostles. We might call it The Activities Um, Or the going on, goings on of the apostles. What did the apostles do? And the book of Acts tells us this is what they did. The first half is primarily about all of the apostles, focused a little bit more on Peter, and then one of the individuals who joined that group named Paul, the second half of the book is largely about Paul. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Acts 17, Paul, who is traveling all over the parts of the known world to spread this amazing message of the gospel, shows up in a city named Athens. Athens was a world-class city. Athens was a city where all of the, um, the commerce um, and the trade and uh, the arts all came together. And we would, call, we would call it today like a San Francisco or like a New York or like a London or like a Berlin. It would be a world-class city. That's how we would describe Athens, where all, everything came together in one place. And Paul, as was often his practice, uh, came into these places looking for people that were interested, that were curious to know more about this person named Jesus, who he was introduced to, and he had given his life to follow and share this message of the gospel. And so in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, Paul walks into the city, and as he enters the city in Athens, he's waiting for some friends there. He's greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And historians tell us that there was idols on every street corner. There was idols in the market. There was idols in the homes. There was idols in the places of worship. There was idols everywhere, literally thousands and thousands of idols. Why all the idols? I would suggest to you that the idols was because they were looking for something. They were looking for some direction. They were looking for 
someone that they could worship. Now, we think as Americans and Westerners, we're too smart and educated and advanced for idols. We don't need idols everywhere, but the truth is, about all of mankind, we're all worshipers. We've been created and designed to worship someone or something. Everyone has. And the question is, who or what do you worship? You see, in our culture, it might not be a statue or a figurine in your home or in your, in your backyard with a little shrine made to it. But in our culture, it might be money, sex, comfort, power, being happy, being valued. We have this vacuum inside of us that needs to be filled. And part of what we discover is, even in a culture like ours, we have everything at our disposal. It doesn't get filled. Someone who's pretty well known is this guy. His name's Tom Brady. His team's won six Super Bowls, worth about 100, net worth about $180 million. But after his first couple Super Bowls, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And they asked him some questions, and look at what he said. He said, why do I, why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? This is a guy that most people would look at this individual and say, he has everything. He said, man, a lot of people would say, hey man, that's what it's all about. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I love playing football, quarterback for my team. But at the same time, I still think there's a lot of other parts of me that I'm still trying to find and figure out. This is a guy who had everything, and we would say is at the top of the world, well, world one of the best-known athletes in the world. And yet he's still looking for something more. And Paul went into a city that was full of idols. And I would suggest we live in a nation full of idols. And the result is a culture chasing and looking for more and more and more and more and more. And so how do people of faith respond when they encounter individuals searching, individuals looking, individuals trying to find answers, trying to find hope? Some people say, you shouldn't be doing all those things you're doing. Some people put signs in their yards. Some people boycott. Some people rant on social media. But Paul didn't do any of those. Paul personally engaged them. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. This is Paul's normal practice. When he would go into a new city, whether it was Thessalonica, whether it was Ephesus, whether it was Corinth, whether it was Athens, he would go to the synagogue because he was a Jew. And so he'd start to talk to his fellow Jews. They had something in common. They had a history and a heritage in common. And he'd start to talk to them and he'd find out, are they interested in this Jesus that they knew about historically, but he had come. And not only come, but he died and he rose again. And then he also would explore God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who wanted to be there. He would go to the place where people were. And that's what the marketplace was. So I don't know where you would meet people. Maybe it's the Green Dragon on every Friday, or maybe it's Weaver's Market Restaurant, you know, or maybe it's Walmart, wherever you connect with people, and you run in and say, hey, how's life? What's going on? You catch up for a minute or two about what's happening this summer, and how's the family doing, and you know, maybe did you hear about this local thing that happened? And that's what Paul was in the process of doing. And as he started to talk to them, they were very intrigued with what Paul was saying. He had some debate with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So he's debating the scholars, the thinkers of the day. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babble trying to, babble or trying to say? Others said, he's preaching about some foreign God. So they, we've got to hear more about what this guy's talking about. So they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? 
Now, the Areopagus was a, was a setting where there was 30 men that had been gathered from all over that part of the city. They were considered to be the most intelligent, the most widely knowledgeable, the most discerning men of that community. And they sat in this place called Mars Hill, and the steps to that place are still there today. And people would bring their ideas, their philosophies, their ways of thinking. They would bring them to these men. They would listen to them. They would fire questions at them. They would debate them to try to discern, is this true? Is this valuable? Is this important? And that's where Paul found himself. As Paul goes up to talk to these guys, this is what they say. You're saying some rather strange things. We want to know about this. Tell us more. Tell us more. So Paul stood before them. He said, men of Athens, I noticed you're very religious in every way. How did Paul notice that? Well, he looked around and he said um, to the men there, he said, as I was walking around and saw your many shrines or idols, I noticed one that stood out. The inscription on it was to the unknown God. This God whom you worship, who you don't even know who he is, guess what, guys? I'm going to tell you about him. You see, Paul had walked around, he'd observed the culture, he observed the people, and then he found a way to connect the truth of what he knew and believed with the culture that they were living in. That's one of the things I love about what Paul did that was so amazing. Paul didn't go into the culture and say, no, that's bad, you should stop that, don't do that. It didn't mean he didn't believe it, but he knew he had to find a place of common language with them a place of common ground with them, a place that he could enter the conversation with them. And as we talk about moving out from the walls of our building and moving into our community and looking for people that God has in our community that are searching for something more, that are looking for the answers that we believe can only be found in Jesus, we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul here. Because he just moved into their world and he walked through their streets and he observed everything about them and he found something in common that he could have a conversation with them and connect it to the God of the heavens. And so he said, this God whom you worship without knowing, he's the one I'm talking about. That's him. It's him. And then he goes on to describe him. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heavens and the earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. What does he say? He says, the God. Not one of the gods. The God. There's only one God. There's not lots of gods. There's not lots of options. He says, the one God who did this, who made everything, the world and everything in it, he is the creator of all. And by the way, he's so big he can't even live in your temples or your places of worship. He's bigger and more grander than anything you know or you can imagine. A number of years ago, there was a PBS special that I heard about, and um, the title of it was called The Glorious Accident. And this PBS special attempted to describe the world that we live in in just that way, as a glorious accident. Um, and thinking about our world, thinking about life that way is pretty dangerous. Um, imagine what it does to a child whose parents tell them repeatedly, no, we didn't plan to have you, you were an accident. You were an accident. Their sense of value and worth, meaning and purpose. 
completely lost. You see, life doesn't have any meaning and purpose then. And in spite of the fact that we live in a culture today where we have more available at our fingertips than at any time in human history, we have more information available on our devices than at any other time in human history. We have one of the most advanced healthcare systems in the world. We can travel anywhere we want to. We can communicate with anyone we need to. And economic prosperity is at amazing levels. What's the result of that? Does that mean life is good and everybody's enjoying life and, and, and we're just thriving as a culture and thriving as a people? No, what you discover is that things like suicide and depression are at some of the highest levels ever been known to mankind. Many of you heard about the tragic apparent suicide this last week down on Route 30, the individual that lost his life. The opioid crisis is running rampant. Why? 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 Because when you're told you're an accident, when you're told there's no purpose, what is the point of living life? And I want to suggest to you that the first thing that Paul wanted, those that were listening to him, and the first truth about God that I want you to grab hold of this morning, that's part of this Apostles' Creed, is this, that God is infinitely powerful. That God is infinitely powerful. And he goes on to describe God in the next verse. He says, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He said, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to do anything or to assist him doing his work. Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. He makes it all possible. He makes it all happen. He makes it all exist. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1 when he says, describing God, he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, these are the things you can't see, his eternal power and his divine nature, the fact that he's God, his power and the fact that he's God, they've been clearly seen being understood from what was made so that people are without excuse. How, how do we know those things exist? He said, you know those things exist because you can see creation. You can see the world. You can see what exists. You can see life. And that gives you evidence that there's a God who exists. One example is the human eye. I wonder who got to be the eye model in that, you know, that picture, but I'm not sure who it was, but the eye model. So is the human eye. You know, the human eye is an unbelievable part of our bodies because with the human eye on a clear day with 20-20 vision that some of you have and some of us enjoy with corrective lenses of some kind, you can see actually 40 miles away on a clear day. That's how far we can see. At the same time, you can Turn your eyes from seeing 40 miles away and look at a grain of sand on your finger and know exactly what that is. Science hasn't been able to replicate that. Technology hasn't been able to replicate that. Um, my computer, my tablet, has um, facial recognition software on it. So if you see me up here doing this, you know, that's what I'm doing up here, you know, trying to get it to turn on so I can t have my notes here in front of me. And... Um, Yesterday I was doing a wedding and I was up in the warehouse and, you know, right at that crucial moment when you're about to say your final words and pronounce to the couple, they'd just done this meaningful song and I kept checking my tablet and make sure it's on, it's on, it's on, it's on. And I go up and I pray and then I, oh, no, it's not on. I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it. It wouldn't recognize me, you know. Technology, you know. I just thought I was getting emotional, but I wasn't, you know. I can 
But um, the human eye is amazing. Amazing. They say that the human eye can recognize 10 million different shades of color. 10 million different shades of color. Unbelievable. Technology cannot replicate that. To assume that the human eye with so many parts working together could have been formed by natural selection seems absurd in the highest degree. Anybody want to take a guess who said that? Want to take a stab at it? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin said that. You know, science makes this amazing case for God. You know, in 1996, Time Magazine ran this cover story asking, ran the cover story asking this question, is God dead? Is God dead? Because many people had believed for, for decades now that God, has, God was dead, yet it turns out that the rumors of God's death were premature. More amazing is that the relatively recent case for existence comes from a surprising place, and that's science itself. You see, in this article in 1996, what they tell us is the story of what's happened in science. You see, in the 1960s, Carl Sagan had determined, um, uh, who was a famous headliner, he had determined that there were two factors needed for life to begin. They needed a planet, and they needed a star that was the right distance from this planet. And you put those two factors together, and life would begin. In the 1960s, this was his quote. And so what began is the government began to fund ways to listen to the outer reaches of the universe to try to find life. And you know what happened? They discovered over time there wasn't just two factors. Now there's ten factors for life to begin. And then they discovered, no, now there's 20 factors for life to begin. And then a little later they discovered now there's 50 factors for life to begin. And today there are more 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life, every single one of which must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. The odds against life existing in the universe are simply astounding. They discovered it's not anywhere else out there. And we can't replicate what we know and experience. The writer goes on to say, doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds to come into being. All of this just happened. Defies science. Defies logic. Let's watch a sunset can't be replicated. See the rainbow that was in the sky over our area Friday night? Can't replicate that. Watch the wonder of a baby being born. Can't duplicate that. And so the first truth is that God is infinitely powerful. He is the creator of heaven and earth. But the second truth is just as important, and that's that God is intensely personal. He's intensely personal. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 26. He says, from one man, he made all the nations. One man being Adam, God created all of the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And God 
marked out their appointed times. God said, okay, time for you to live, and time for you to live, and time for you to live, and the boundaries of their lands. This will be your part, and your part, and your part, and your part. And you get this sense as you read this that God has orchestrated all of human history. To what end? To what end? To create a kingdom for Himself? To be this, cold, to be this powerful, all-controlling deity? No. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out to Him and find Him, though He's not far from any one of us. You see, God's not a cold, impersonal deity. God did this because He wants a relationship with you. God sent His Son Jesus because He wants to have a relationship with you, not only now, but for all of eternity. He did this because He's personal, intensely personal. And He wants us to understand this is true about Him. When His disciples said, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? He did not say to them, this is how you pray. Oh, great and mighty, powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. What did Jesus say to His disciples? What were the first two words? Our what? Say it again. Our what? Father. 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 Intensely. Intensely. Personal. David described it this way in Psalm 62. He says, One thing God has spoken, two things I've heard. Power belongs to you. Infinitely powerful. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. Intensely. Personal. I don't know about you, but the reality is I want to know a God that both of those things are true. I want to know a God that both of those things are true. I mean, what little kid doesn't believe that dad is the biggest and strongest guy that there is? What little kid doesn't believe that? And, and you, you kind of get that luxury for a number of years, especially if you've got sons, so they get to be about 15, 16, and they're pumping the weights, you know, right? Um, but for a long time, dads kind of get these bragging rights that, wow, dad, you can do that. I, Mom can't open that pickle jar, but you can open the pickle jar, you know, and, and uh, you know, I can't pick this up, and mom can't, and, and nobody can, and you can pick this up, you know, and, and, and dad, you kind of you know what to do. I don't really know what to do, and you go to dad, and dad knows what to do, and and you're like, wow, dad is, he's strong and he's, he knows what to do and he can solve problems, he can fix things. But there's another side that God wants us to know. That while many of us have known this side of our dads, few of us have known dad. who's intimately personal with us. Who knows us well enough to know when we're struggling. Who knows our fears. Who knows the pain that we've lived with in life. Who knows the confusing things of our struggle. Sure, Dad was there. He provided. He was physically present. But if we're honest, 
We long, and our hearts long for more than that. You see, we want a God who's powerful enough to show up and do something in our life, but compassionate and personal enough to be present with us no matter what we are going through. Kind of like this guy. He's got his gear on. He's got his helmet on. He's locked and loaded, and he's going to take care of whatever's needed. But he's got the personal and compassionate capacity to be on his knees, giving that child a hug. In this case, you don't want a cop who's just by the book. You want a cop whose heart is there with you. And so let me ask you this question. If you believed God is infinitely powerful, and you believe God was intimately personal, how would that change you? How would that change you? For some of you, you just have to sit with the second half of that statement. Because you know God's powerful. You know He can do all those things. You know what it says here in the book that He can do. But you personally didn't experience a father who was intimately personal. And it's hard for you to believe that God cares and is with you in some of the stuff you're walking into right now. And so for some of you, it's just sitting and hearing this truth from me, allowing it to move from here down to here as you face the challenges you walk into this week. Some of you have, and you know that to be true, and you have embraced this about the God that you know and love. And so how would you answer this question would you trust more and worry less? Would you not pinch every penny and would you give generously knowing God's going to provide? Would you share your faith with conviction, trusting that he's going to lead you? Would you live out your faith boldly and not worry about what others think? Would you face the darkness and the, and the struggles in your life knowing God's going to be there with you and walk with you through that pain? What would that look like for you? If you believed God was infinitely powerful and intimately personal, what would that mean in your life today? See, these truths about God are not just truths for you to grab onto, to have some more information, to put in a filing cabinet in your brain as you walk out the door. These truths about God are designed to shape and guide your life today. I want to invite you to bow your heads this morning with me and just give you a moment to talk to God today. And maybe you've never thought about God being intimately personal and He feels pretty distant and removed and you just need to acknowledge that to Him this morning. be honest and say, God, I, 
I want to know and believe in and follow a God who knows me and loves me. That was willing to give up everything, his one and only son, for me. Maybe for you this morning, the, the truth about God is what you need to give you the confidence and the courage and the clarity to walk down the road God has in front of you. God, you know each one of our stories. You wrote them in eternity past, and, and we're living them out today. And, um, and God, in the midst of that, you've done all of this because you want a relationship with us. And so, Lord, no matter where each one of us is at, may the experience of our lives today be ones in which We hear these truths, we grab hold of these truths, we embrace these truths, and then in faith we will live out of them this week. Help us to do that, God. We can't do this 